Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and this is FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Hiring the right people is often the biggest hurdle to building a successful business. It's hard enough to find loyal employees, but what if they're also aspiring entrepreneurs? Lopo Champalimold, founder of the online marketplace for health treatments, TreatWell, opted to bring other founders into his business when he wanted to expand rapidly across Europe. He told me the story. I remember when we started the business, I really didn't know how we were going to become international. I knew this was one of the big problems with our business, was how was it going to make a scale outside of the UK? Our chairman used to be the CEO at Just Eat, and I asked him to become chairman because he was the only person I had in my space who I could point to who had built a really successful business on a pan-European basis that was very local, like ours. And so I approached him and I said, you know, I think the way we should do this, we're going to centralize everything. And then as we grow in the market, we'll then start building out teams locally, but only once we have a certain amount of scale. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Lopo, that's the textbook answer. And from a management consultant perspective, you're absolutely right. But if you want to succeed, you've got to do it differently. You've got to go build it locally. It's more expensive. It's more painful. But it's the only way you're going to succeed. Why is your business so reliant on being local? The hair and beauty market is one of those really interesting markets. It's a market that most men don't spend a lot of time thinking about. But we believe it's about a 100 billion euro market. Just the salon and hair and beauty services market across Europe. So it's an immense market. But 95% of these businesses are single owner operated. Chains make a very small part of this business. And they don't know how to use the internet generally speaking, they haven't really adopted the internet. They don't have marketing teams. So what we're trying to do is create a platform for them to be able to market themselves. But what we're dealing with is a lot of small independent players. So not only are the businesses local, but the consumer, the way they consume it is very local. And so we need to have supply, which is able to meet that demand at a very, very local granular level. So you want these entrepreneurial people who understand locally yes. what's going on. Have you managed to keep these people running those companies and how do you do that? I guess the way to answer this question, I think, is to go back to our original culture. And from the very start, even though we were just five people sitting around my dining room table, we always had this belief about the culture. And the culture was that we wanted to create an organization where people felt a sense of responsibility and independence. And that's been reflected in a number of things we do. We don't have a travel policy. We don't have holiday policies, so you can take unlimited amounts of holiday. And the policies extend all the way through the business in a number of ways. But it's at the fundamental core, it's this idea of freedom and responsibility and giving people information, but letting people make independent decisions for themselves. And that created, I think, a basis of a culture, which I think sets ourselves up very, very well for what we've decided to do as a business, which is to really create these talent pools in 11 countries. We have 11 offices, so we have an office in each country, and to create this independent 
culture where people can feel that they can really progress and be entrepreneurial within a big umbrella of a company. The second thing that we did is when we acquired these businesses, we weren't acquiring established businesses. We weren't acquiring revenue streams of any substance. We were acquiring individuals. So the most important thing for me was, did we find a group of individuals who believed in what we were trying to do and wanted to be part of our journey? And that was actually really important because if somebody didn't put up their hand and say, yes, I really like what you guys are doing. I like the team. I want to be part of this and I'm willing to give up a little bit of control here. Then I think that it never works. So there has to be that moment where you look at each other, you're like, actually, you're somebody I want to work with and I want to work with together for many, many years to come. When we go into a new country, we can provide capital, we can provide technology, we can provide operating skill sets and knowledge, but ultimately, I rely on a local team to acquire both the customers and the salons locally. So it was sort of a hiring of people locally, but actually they were people who'd proven themselves by already starting. Yes. I mean, we could have hired people. And in fact, in half the countries we did, we just hired people. And some of those hires, like everywhere, some of those hires have been great and some of them weren't so good. But by acquiring a small team, there was some advantages. You know, you had relationships with the salons that were there. You had a customer base that we could accelerate from, and that helped accelerate our business. But most importantly, you had a group of individuals who had been living and breathing the problem and the business and the industry and understood the issues. And that's, in my opinion, invaluable. How do you incentivize these founders of these operations? And then is there something for the wider staff? So we spent a lot of time thinking about how to structure this. And I think the structure for how you do these acquisitions is critical. In our case, the entrepreneurs, when we acquired the businesses, they received very little in terms of cash. They received most of they received a stock. And we gave them stock in the group company. I believed really strongly that it was important that everyone be aligned. And if we made a decision that was maybe the right decision for the group, but may hinder their own opportunities locally, then they should be supportive of that. And the only way I figured to do that is to give them stock in the whole group. So every one of those individuals became stockholders in exactly the same class, in exactly the same type of stock that I had. The second thing we did is we felt it was really important that everyone in the company feel that they're part of one big company. And so we actually gave all employee stock, regardless of which country they're in. And I think that's been really appreciated. So everybody is a shareholder. In How much does that mean? Overall, uh, roughly speaking, management employees own about 20% of this company. But the individual, it comes down to, you know, levels and, and experience and, and contribution they make, etc. You can stand up and say, we are all shareholders. Yeah, absolutely. And most importantly, not only are you all shareholders, but you're all shareholders in the same way, in the same company. And we're all sharing from each other's successes. So it's helping it's that, that glue. It definitely it. helps the glue. It really does. As does the brand name. But most importantly, the culture. Once someone does decide to work together, we have to work as one team. So yeah. there's, a, there's a real moment, I think, for any entrepreneur of letting go. And ironically, when we did it, we were doing a lot of these acquisitions at exactly the same time as we decided to sell 80% of the company to a big Japanese group, Recruit Holdings. And so I was doing exactly the same thing myself. And I was able to look and say, listen guys, we all are giving up some control at some level, but we're also all trying to protect it. And the relationship I had with Recruit 
is the one I'd like to be able to replicate with the rest of my team, which is one where I have responsibilities, I have obligations for reporting, I have targets, I have budgeting, I have all those things, but I also have a huge amount of freedom in how I execute those things. And as long as I kind of am doing a good job of presenting those things, and as long as the team is doing a good job of delivering those results, we have a lot of the freedom that we want. I remember when we did the first step into Germany, we made this acquisition. One of my investors turned to me and he said, Lopo, you know, you realize this is the single most important decision you're ever going to make. I mean, you're betting the company basically on this decision. And of course, there was some naivety in that decision, but it turned out to be such a good decision, as were all the acquisitions that we made. And I think that you have to progress and you have to accept that it's going to be a bit messy in some places. And you're going to be, if you're especially doing acquisitions at that stage, to some degree, you're assembling the car while driving it. You know, you have to be ready for that. Each market's different, but we've definitely learned from every one of those markets. When we entered some of these markets, we would say, this is how we've done it in the UK. This is what we think works. And the country manager in that country might say, actually, I don't think I really want to do it that way. I think there's a better way of doing this. And they would progress a different route. And we try to learn from that. The most concrete example of how we've been able to take an idea from a different business, one of our different countries, and apply it everywhere is the name itself. So when I founded the business, it was under the name Wanda. And when we started moving outside of the UK, we had five different brand names in these 10 and 11 countries. And we realized we need to consolidate under one brand. So we went through a process of trying to find the perfect brand name. And we went through thousands and thousands and thousands of names. And what we figured out was actually the best brand name that we could use was Treatwell, which was a name of a company that we had acquired in Holland. Some people said, are you sure you want to do that? And I said, well, actually, listen, it's the best name. We should use the best name. And what it allowed me, though, when I could look at some of the other country managers who also had their own names and the names they'd created, when they felt a certain pang of loss that they were giving up their brand name, I could look at them in the eye and say, listen, I'm doing exactly the same thing. Wahanda was the name I gave my business to the brand. I'm giving it up and I think it's a good thing for all of us. But there's many examples of where we've taken ideas and best practices. For instance, our business in Germany had done a really, really good job in building the software for salons. And in some ways, there was functionality that they had that we didn't have. And so one of the first things we did when we acquired that business is we spent six months just trying to understand some of that functionality they built and replicate it into an ARM platform. And we understood that not only have they done a really good job in the software features, but they'd also done a really good job in the way they sold it into the salons as well. So there were some things that we were, we were trying to learn from each country. Chris Coleridge, a lecturer on business innovation and strategy, says research has shown that entrepreneurial teams have a higher success rate than sole founders. But Treatwell is an intriguing case. You can see that if you've got uh, someone who has the local knowledge, and this is what Hayek says is the basis of entrepreneurial profit, is the ability to kind of turn fleeting, locally-based knowledge into privileged market insight that then allows you to make a profit. So it's a very nice way of sort of combining a central view of what a good business model is that I guess the Lopo has with this fleeting local knowledge. I think there's a huge tension there about 
whether teams that are made up of sole founders, a couple of sole founders coming together, are sustainable in the medium term. I mean, you can think of all sorts of ways to kind of keep them on the rails together, but you can also think about both parties wanting autonomy and wanting to sort of have control of their baby, their concept, their firm. And I just wonder how, in the medium term, these partnerships are going to sustain. Is there anything that can be done when there is a stronger party to encourage others to stick with it? You know, the classic answer to this question is about vision and saying, you know, that the leader's task is to put forward a vision that then can kind of inspire people to play their part in building that vision. Nigel Nicholson at London Business School talks about the way that it's not very effective to tell people how to behave or to suggest to them belief systems that they can adopt as their own or value system they can adopt as their own, but that it is effective to try to create a commonly held vision which then people can feel like there is a sense in which we're all on the same team building towards that vision. If people do want to move on, how much of an issue is that? Well, we know that when we're talking about teams that have come together at the very earliest stages of a business, that that team not gelling is one of the main reasons that these early stage ideas fall apart. In what Lopo's building, I suspect that losing one of these local country founders might not be quite so dangerous in the sense that someone else who has that sort of insight into local conditions might be able to come in and bring to the party a lot of what the sort of original founder, original business owner was bringing. I think one of the key elements that often gets overlooked is that the shareholding structure, how much equity each member of the co-founding team is going to hold, needs to correspond to the contribution that that team member is going to make to the business in the future. There's a tendency to think about well, what's fair at the moment? How many hours have I put in? I'm bringing my contact book to the table. You're bringing your contact book to the table. What's the scarcity value of the skill sets that we have? These would be the typical considerations. But we always have to remember that what's fair right now may not be the optimal structure in terms of incentivizing future contributions from the members of the co-founding team. And so one of the jobs of the CEO in putting together the mix of the co-founding team and who's gonna get how many shares is to get this future-oriented structure in place where I'm receiving a number of shares or I'm receiving a kind of equity-based compensation that corresponds to my future contribution to the business. For the last word on the subject, here is Lopo again. I put it to him that he'd shown that there could be harmony in Europe. We can work (laughs) together. Should you have a word with some politicians? Yeah, I, I, I do think we can work together and I think we have an incredible opportunity across Europe to build great businesses. I think we have challenges. It's a hugely challenging market to work across given all the different cultural and linguistic differences. But what an opportunity we have too. And I do think it takes a certain skill set to be able to operate in this very fragmented way. One of the things that was really striking was when we started thinking about the new brand, we got all the different countries together. We went to each country and we brought groups to London and we did this whole research process. And we asked people what they felt their brand was about. And what was striking was that everybody described their brands the exact same way, right? The values of our brand and the values of the business that was behind it were identical in each country. We just had different names for it. And I think that's actually been a very important part of the glue. You feel, you know, that just happened. You hadn't necessarily engineered. Well, part of it's engineered. 
Part of it is a very deliberate decision on our part about what we want our culture to be and how we want to enforce it and cultivate it. But some of it was, I think, in the decisions on which companies we decided to acquire, which entrepreneurs we decided to work with. It comes back to this question, like, what asset were we trying to acquire? And fundamentally, we were acquiring people. And if we didn't feel that cultural fit, it was never going to work. Next time, we'll be talking about failure with a founder who has turned the collapse of his business into an opportunity to reinvent himself. Goodbye, and thank you for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.